Welcome to the Podcast of Ideas. My name is Ella Whelan, co-convener of the Battle of Ideas Festival, and you're about to hear a recording from our 2022 London Festival held at Church House Westminster. We're already gearing up for next year, and you can find out more about dates and tickets on our website. Just hit the link below this recording or head to battleofideas.org.uk. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to catch all the recordings from this year and more from the Academy of Ideas team. So, this debate is called Call to Courage, Winning the Battle of Ideas. In the chair is Claire Fox. Welcome to this uh, final keynote controversy. Uh, My name is Claire Fox. I'm the director of the Academy of Ideas. Um, This session is about courage, but I'd just like to say... I'm glad to see that there's also a bit of resilience at the Battle of Ideas and that you're all still here. Um, So well done on that. Uh, It's been a long weekend, but I think that it's very important after a weekend at which we've discussed so many and such a wide variety of issues that we consider a little bit what the barriers might be to moving forward or what we ought to do moving forward. And this session is called Call to Courage... Uh, winning the battle of ideas. I, you know, spend a lot of time um, being humbled by the courage of others, uh, most recently and obviously, and everyone else has said it, the women of Iran, and particularly the young women of Iran, and you can't believe that they are doing indeed what they are doing, tearing their veils off in defiance of the most brutal response. But there are, of course, so many more. J.K. Rowling, Salman Rushdie, indeed ordinary people in Ukraine, and it doesn't matter whether you, what view you take on that war, the idea that one day you wake up and your life is in a situation where you are forced to consider whether you're gonna go and fight in a physical war is quite something else that people have risen to that. And the obvious, thought was that they would be absolutely hammered by this professional Russian army and suddenly you realise it's not quite so simple. So there's that side to it but there's not a lot of use of us just simply saying or doing a roll call of courageous people but to consider where we are here in the UK particularly at the moment and to know that it is peculiar that whilst the young people and old people and all sorts of people in Ukraine are fighting the war, that the greatest mention of, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder in the UK is not post-war, but post being taught something uncomfortable in a university seminar. And that actually sometimes being a victim is valorised far more than having courage. Showing your scars, sometimes literally, um, can be like that. So I just wanted to talk about it and I wanted to gather together a panel to consider it. In the blurb, it talks about a walk on by society, a a, a sense of um, people keeping their heads down, walking on by and so on. And a lot of times in a lot of these sessions today, People have said we need more courage, but, you know, it's scary out there. And I have said many a time, because it's true, that cancel culture has made cowards of us all. 
And there is so often the case that I have thought, oh no, don't let me have to speak on this. I just don't want to do it because everyone will hate me and it's not nice and they'll all call me a bigot and it's horrible. Um, what do we do? How do we gather ourselves together? What kind of culture are we living in and what can we do to allow ourselves to uh, uh, have courage of our convictions, speak out and so on? So I've just asked some panellists together who I admire in different ways um, and I'm going to introduce them now in the order that they'll speak for five minutes each. We've got First of all, Ali Mirage, who is a columnist at The Article. He's a commentator who is never off the bloody telly. I mean, he's on the telly more than I am, right? Which is saying something. Um, he, more importantly, uh, is a founder of the Contrarian Prize, um, which is actually on its 10th anniversary, and they've got an event on, is it Wednesday or Thursday? Wednesday, I'm chairing, I should know. Wednesday. Um, to look at contrarianism, and, and he might say something else on that, but he's also an infrastructure financier and a DJ, so he's a man of many talents, but he's also been a great supporter of the uh, Battle of Ideas Festival over many years, um, and we're delighted to have him. We're then going to hear from Tim Stanley, who is a columnist and leader writer at the Daily Telegraph. He's the author of Whatever Happened to Tradition, History, Belonging, and the Future of the West? And I think that Tim, for me, is a go-to person to dig deep into some of the moral and historical questions and to come up with something interesting, as he always does. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what Tim says. We then have Professor Sinetra Gupta, who's a professor of theoretical epidemiology at the Department of Zoology in Oxford, another multi-talented person because she's also a novelist, and maybe uh, became more famous against what she might have anticipated by um, putting her head above the parapet and saying some issues around the lockdowns and signing the Great Barrington Declaration that turned her into an international pariah for many people. Um, she had the courage to carry on speaking out and um, she was certainly a heroine of many more of us as well. And talking of she heroes, I'm sure there's not, that's not a word. I probably misgendered or something. Right. We have uh, Julie Bindle, the much-cancelled Julie Bindle. I mean, Julie was being cancelled before it was fashionable for people to be cancelled. <laughs> that's true, though, isn't it? Yeah. And actually, being cancelled around the issue of gender ideology and sex before anyone knew that there was a controversy around that issue... Um, she's a journalist and author of uh, Feminism for Women, The Real Roots of Liberation. She really has been a resistance leader in many ways. And I know that when I've lost my nerve, I've thought, what would Julie say? And that she's more frightening than being cancelled has allowed me to develop the courage to speak out, because I've never wanted to think I was a coward. Um, so we're great to have Julie. And then... We're going to finish off with Bruno Waterfield, who's a Brussels correspondent at The Times. Uh, Bruno is here because he's a Battle of Ideas regular uh, speaker. He's spoken at a lot of the events that we've organised over the years. And Bruno is brutally honest in the kind of, in, in a way, forcing us to confront the situations we live in. He's always an interesting thinker, and I'm delighted to have him here. And the fact that he's been in Brussels for 25 years is 
almost heroic or courageous in my view. Uh, can we give them all a very warm welcome, please? <laughs> Ali, can you share your thoughts? Uh, thank you very much, Claire. Uh, what an absolute pleasure to be here and with this absolutely uh, stellar panel. I don't know if any of you have watched that film, 12 Angry Men, a 1957 classic starring Henry Fonda. Uh, the scene is uh, that a jury retire to consider their verdict of a young man who's accused of uh, committing murder. Uh, Henry Fonda uh, decides that he wants to have a discussion uh, before coming to a conclusion. He's the only one who goes against the grain. All of his other jurors believe that it's an open and shut case and the, uh, the person is guilty. Eventually, one by one, he turns them around, makes them question their initial thoughts, and eventually they uh, come to a conclusion of not guilty. It takes courage to go against the grain. It takes courage to stand against the crowd, and it takes courage to convince people to rethink uh, their initial views. And just on courage, I mean, for me, courage is not the absence of fear. It's the management and coexistence of it, or with it, rather. It's one of the actual four fundamental criteria that we uh, came up with when assessing the, 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 the traits that we were looking for in people to win the Contrarian Prize, which celebrates its 10th anniversary, which uh, Claire referred to. Independence of thought, courage and conviction in their actions, sacrifice for beliefs, and the introduction of in, uh, new ideas into the public realm. But courage was absolutely fundamental to the whole thing. And if I think about some of the people who have been put up for the prize in the past, you know, there are two real, two real types of contrarians for me. Uh, one is the type of contrarian that was uh, always wanting to go against the grain and show courage for what they believe since they were in nappies. Uh, and I'm thinking of Peter Tatchell here. I mean, the guy who's campaigning for the last 55 years since he was 15 in his own state. And that takes guts to do it. These are the kinds of people who go against the grain and display that courage because they, they, they see the world differently. They want to argue for a particular point of view. I think of Tom Paine back in the 18th century. I mean, this was a person who displayed immense courage. He was involved in two revolutions. The American, through his uh, pamphlet, Common Sense, which became an absolutely bestseller, became the intellectual father of the American Revolution, but also Rights of Man, uh, in, in France, with the, the sort of was a, a key thing in the, in the French Revolution, and he was uh, charged with seditious libel. And at his funeral, only six people turned up. So, you, you know, if you go against the grain, you're not always going to be popular. But that's not exactly um, the point. The other type of contrarian is the person who, in my view, never wanted to actually speak out. They were trying to keep their heads down, but they come to an inflection point. A a, a, a path, a, a stop in the road where they can take the path of conviction or the path of convenience. And I think of the first winner of the Contrarian Prize, Michael Woodford, who was the CEO of Olympus Corporation, chairman and CEO, went to Japan, within a couple of weeks of taking over his position, discovered a $1.7 billion fraud, wrote six letters to the board saying he wanted to investigate it. They called him in into an extraordinary uh, board meeting and fired him. He lost his job and he was out of the corporate sector for, for many, many years. Uh, and that takes guts. It takes guts to actually stand up for what you believe in. It takes courage to stand up for what you believe in. 
and uh, more power to the, uh, the contrarians um, who do that. But it's also seen in people like Li Wenliang, the person who blew the whistle, if you like, or raised the issue around uh, COVID. He was um, working in Wuhan. Uh, he was a doctor there, and he raised this issue about a potential virus that was spreading around and that the authorities should take action. He was called in and told that he was spreading malicious rumors and that uh, he should be completely silenced, which he was, and he died uh, only a few weeks uh, later. Uh, you've also got people like Robin Cook uh, in the Iraq war who went, uh, I mean, he never wanted to stand against his own party line, but he came to a, in, a point in the road where he had to make a decision. Did he, did he stand up against the Iraq war or would he keep quiet? And he decided that um, his uh, career was secondary to doing the right thing. So look, all of this leads me to a point where I think, well, courage really is about, for me, railing against groupthink. And when I talk about groupthink, I think of the, the words of Irving Yanis, the American psychologist in 1972, who coined this phrase. And he coined it when he did an analysis into the Bay of Pigs fiasco uh, that never came off. And it was around the thing, and I'm going to quote it here. He said, people in a group pursue a clubby atmosphere so that group members uh, suppress their personal doubts, silence dissenters, and follow the leader's suggestions. That is basically a recipe for disaster. It sort of outsources your own brain to the, to the will of your leader and to the, to, the, uh, to the will of the group. And for me, to go against that and to display the courage of challenging the status quo is absolutely fundamentally important. And you look at it in British public life now, and you hear people like attack people like uh, Sajid Javid or Rishi Sunak uh, for going against the grain and, and actually calling for Boris Johnson to resign. Frankly, I thought it was an absolute disgrace that despite the Nolan principles, by the way, there are seven of them, uh, please look them up, integrity, honesty, openness, transparency, leadership, and others. And you think day after day, and I understand collective responsibility. I've stood for parliament twice. I understand how it works. But going out and defending the party line, this absolutely indefensible claptrap around parties and around all this nonsense, it devalues public life. And it took courage and guts to actually stand up finally. It took too long in my view. I think it should have been done a lot earlier than it was to say that this is not acceptable, that um, we expect standards in public life and to go against the grain and say this person should resign. And instead of uh, being lauded for that, many people say that they were backstabbers. I think that's absolutely ridiculous and wrong. So look, for me, there's an absence of courage uh, in public life right now. Uh, I also think if you think about the, the way that uh, our public discourse is conducted at the moment is increasingly divisive, it's tribal, uh, it's built around um, <coughs> sort of the extremes. So this whole enlightenment value about rational thinking, about nuance, about what Karl Popper said, when you actually engage in a debate and a discourse, you're trying to argue and, and advance through disputation and argument. That's how you advance in a thing. But nowadays, you have to have courage even to like state things that once were regarded as pretty normal, like biological sex actually matters. I mean, you can't even have a discussion around this. And this is not to say that one can't be respectful. Of course, one should always be respectful, but robust. 
And I think the problem we now have is that we are encouraged, social media is part of it, but the general discourse is that it's such a paltry, low level. I mean, Battle of Ideas is one of these spaces which is an exception to the rule, really, where we can come together and thrash out these ideas and challenge each other and hopefully advance our understanding and our conversation. Uh, so I think, you know, to, to really sum up, for me, I, I, I applaud contrarians. They're the ones for me who go against the grain. They're the ones for me who display courage, and rightly so. I respect them. I laud them. Uh, I think that they put themselves in harm's way. When I spoke to Peter Tatchell, I interviewed him, by the way, and I'll end on this point. I asked him, I said, when you were beaten up by Robert Mugabe's bodyguards in 2001, they kicked your head in. What were you thinking? Why did you do it? Were you, were you, did, how did you manage your fear? He said, I was shaking like a leaf, but I just felt that if I didn't do it, you know, if I was in that position when I was being persecuted, I would want someone to stand up for me. And that's why I did it. So people who go against the grain and show courage think about things that are bigger than just their own narrow self-interest. Thank you. Thanks very much, Ali. Um, Tim, your thoughts. Thank you. I'm going to have to do something I hate doing, which is reading my speech off my phone. Uh, I just wish there was a computer company that was brave enough to make a printer that works. <laughs> and picking up on what Ali just said, uh, I will open with the words of a great philosopher. Quote, courage isn't just a matter of not being frightened. It's being afraid and doing what you have to do anyway. Does anyone know who said that? It was Doctor Who. <laughs> uh, and not the modern rubbish Doctor Who which is basically Grange Hill in space. But John Pertwee, a Doctor Who who was watched in the 1970s by a generation of adults who had been through a world war and by and large preferred not to talk about it. I've always admired my grandparents' education and their erudition, but also their preference not to show it off. They were people who had interiority. Their diaries were worth reading. By contrast, my generation talks ceaselessly, online and about ourselves, claiming that everything we do is some great act of courage, particularly the incredibly brave act of being ourselves. <laughs> well, in Iran, that can be a very dangerous thing to do. In Wimbledon, it is not. <laughs> All this vain chatter is a product of new technology, yes, but also it's a perversion of psychoanalysis, which was developed to help us cope with difficult feelings, like fear or anxiety, but nowadays tells us to wallow in them or even to act on them. And this cult of weakness marinates in the perversion of Christianity, as documented by Friedrich Nietzsche. Christians worship Jesus, who is not a macho god like Zeus, but a sacrificial victim. As time has gone by, the theological subtleties of that radical message have been lost, but Western culture has retained an instinct that to be weak is automatically to be right. Hence, to be offended, triggered, marginalized, or oppressed is to attain immediate, visible sainthood. Human beings are competitive creatures. If we are told that the best way to win is to lose, then we'll all throw the towel in at the first opportunity. But this is not the natural order of mankind. History proves it. There was nothing special about the men and women who fought for Britain in the 1940s. On the contrary, some of them famously said in the 1930s that they would refuse to do it if asked. Everyday life proves that it's not natural. 
I am quietly astonished at the bravery of women who give birth or people who take on the task of caring for a relative with dementia. And what is happening abroad proves it's not natural. A few months ago, I went to Ukraine to write about the war. Lots of British people said to me, you must be awfully brave. And it made me feel like a fraud. I was reporting from a part of Ukraine that was perfectly safe. In fact, the most dangerous thing about it was the way Ukrainians drive. And I didn't like the idea that I would be admired for doing something that posed minimal to no risk. The Telegraph wanted to send me in a bulletproof vest, but I was told I'd have to check it as extra luggage. And I said, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to give EasyJet the extra cash. <laughs> no, the brave people are not English tourists like me who tweet about what they've seen and how they feel about it. It's the Ukrainians who fight or take their family to safety, or stay behind out of obligation or bloody-mindedness. One of the striking things about war, if you've had the misfortune to see it, is how life goes on around it. There I was, staying in a university, in the middle of a conflict, bombs, air raid sirens, the lot, and kids were still going to class, cooks were still serving lunch. There was trauma in people's faces, like the obvious trauma that my grandmother was left with following the blitz. Such pain, such fear, is not to be denied or suppressed. It should be acknowledged and respected. There is also, however, in Ukraine, an additional thing to courage, resilience. What I'm saying is, despite a Western culture of self-obsession, there is still an abundance of courage in the world if we only expand our definition and thus see it more clearly. The courage of admitting that you have a problem and of seeking to help to change. The genuine Christian courage of surrendering your own comfort and ambitions to help others, or the courage to defy society's very definition of courage at any given time. After all, in the midst of a war, some of the bravest people of all are those who, on grounds of principle, stand up and refuse to fight and to kill. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Funny and moving. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, I was very fortunate to spend a year in the, um, between 1972 and 73 in the UK while I was, um, when I was growing up. So I did get to um, see John Pertwee playing <laughs> Doctor Who, which is perhaps why um, I too kind of, well, I share your view, Tim, about courage, um, not just being the absence of fear, or the absence of cowardice. And in that regard, do not uh, feel, again, like Tim, a bit of a fraud, um, you know, presenting myself here as an example of courage. Um, because it, this is a conversation, in fact, we were having just the other day amongst um, um, myself, Jay Bhattacharya and Martin Kuldorf, uh, the three of us who, uh, published the Great Barrington Declaration about two years ago. Um, and Jay was of the view that we'd done something courageous, whereas Martin and I said no. Right? We didn't think of it as an act of courage at all. It was um, something we had to do. It, th there was no choice. There was absolutely no choice. Uh, and the, the question then really arises, is that courage? Is the avoidance of cowardice, does that count as courage? In terms of avoidance of cowardice, in this case, this was the cowardice 
not to challenge what was being touted as the scientific consensus. And that too was just, um, it was peculiar to most of us because that's what we do as scientists. Challenging the status quo is what we do. That is how science moves forward. That is how you push the boundaries of um, any kind of comprehension forward. So these modes of um, you know, registering a particular view were to me and many others, I'm sure, uh, we, neither was it an alien thing to do. That's what I've done the last 35 years. I've stood up and said, I don't think influenza evolves in this way. I think it does this. Um, I don't think malaria has it, an R naught of 153. I think it has an R naught of two. So the, these are things that, you know, that, that is the bread and butter of what we do. So it was a peculiar situation that um, we found ourselves in, I think, as scientists, um, challenging the status quo uh, when it came to a number of things concerning um, the, the, the science, if you like, of, of COVID, um, which involved both how the, the virus actually behaved and what effects any, any of our policies might have in terms of intervening in the natural, its natural history, um, and to what, to what effect, what would that eventually achieve? And we also found ourselves um, straying into territories where we weren't experts, which was to question the um, value of lockdowns in terms of their, their the effects, the, the larger effects, the socioeconomic effects, the, the aesthetic considerations, um, the effects on civil, civil liberties. But all of these obviously arose out of deep-held views, which within me as an individual are what make me um, a self-consistent entity. Um, and so to, to to not speak out or to, to not be able to deliver those thoughts in a format that was um, you know, ostensibly going to go against what was being said um, would have been a, a very, very deep betrayal of myself. And actually earlier on today I was talking about this with Thomas Fatsi and he said, yes, indeed, that in some ways you might say, what you did was quite selfish. And so, and I, of course it was a joke, but, but there is a grain of truth in that, in that, you know, sometimes when you stand up and speak your mind or say what you have to say, if the primary motivation is really that, you know, you, you need to be true to yourself, I'd like to think that my primary motivation was perhaps more that lockdowns would cause so much harm that there was, uh, that it was absolutely, um, it was really important to stand up and say something. Uh, as a professional, I couldn't neglect that duty. But one has to also consider, uh, again, something Tim spoke about, which is that, you know, I was speaking from the comfort of a permanent job in academia um, within 
a country which, and a university where I could be fairly comfortable that I wouldn't lose my job, I wouldn't lose my livelihood, um, my children wouldn't starve. So all of these are considerations. When we think about someone having courage, we need, there is the kind of courage that perhaps we displayed, which sadly was lacking in, in many others. But that's perhaps not to be equated with the kind of courage some of the, of the Ukrainian people or of, um, you know, people in Afghanistan, all the Iranian. I mean, there's so many examples, it's it just, it's embarrassing. But just the last, my last thought here is also that we must be very, um, I think, compassionate towards those who cannot display that courage because they have so much to lose, because they have children to feed, because they can't afford to uh, lose their jobs. Uh, we must be compassionate towards those and people. And, you know, when I think back to my younger self, perhaps there was a time when I didn't have a permanent position, when I was dependent on grants to run my research, that I wouldn't have been able to do what I did. So I think while we hail courage, we must also be compassionate to those who don't have that luxury. Courage can be a luxury. I was fortunate to have that luxury. Uh, just to clarify one thing, we didn't ask you on as a kind of specimen, you know, oh, here she is, she's courage, um, but, but because you're thoughtful and you've just proved that. And I think in the discussion, we won't have much of time for a huge discussion, but in the discussion, as it's been the case all weekend, just simply saying, have courage, go forward and do it, is very different for someone like me than it is for, you know, who's better in the House of Lords, can't be cancelled. You know, I mean, everyone hates me anyway, it doesn't matter. Then somebody, as we heard from young students earlier, who realise that if they speak out and they apply for jobs, they won't get the jobs if they've got the label. So I, I think that's a very useful point to make. Julie, your thoughts? Um, towards the end of the 1990s, when just at the end of the Bosnian War and during the Kosovo conflict, I went to Pristina, the capital of Kosovo, to report on some um, horrific crimes committed uh, against women and girls, the trafficking of women and girls into prostitution, forced marriage, uh, femicide, and the like. And I was staying in an apartment that had been vacated by some senior politicians. There were bullet holes in the walls and the brick, and the windows were bulletproofed, and we were assigned uh, a guard and there were men with guns outside of the building. And when I managed to get a call um, back to my loved ones, it was all, you must be very brave, what courage this takes. That night, we had a few glasses of whiskey, because what else can you do? It was boiling hot in the apartment, there was no air conditioning, and I found a chest freezer, which was plugged in, and it was very, very cold in there, and I stood in the chest freezer in order to, to just cool down. So my feet were nice and cold and it was all feeling much, much better. And I fell into the chest freezer and the top slammed down on me and centrifugal force, couldn't get the, it open. And I was utterly, abjectly terrified. And sometime during that 
Seven and a half minutes I was in, the chest freezer locked in, as I later found out, something went through my head. It was the Guardian obituary. I'd gone out there, <laughs> a brave journalist, to report on heinous crimes, but I wasn't shot by a trafficker having saved the lives of 20 women. I died in a fucking chest freezer, <laughs> right? So when, we, when I think about courage, I think about feminism because most people are antagonistic to or hate feminism, and that includes women, because we are a great threat to the natural order, we are a threat to relationships between men and women. When we point out the crimes that men commit towards women because they can and they get away with it, not because they're born and they're socially programmed to do that, then we get so much flack you would not believe. And in order to sustain your line, in other words, rather than look at women being victimized and talk about women's refuges and women's tears and bruises and broken bones, when we point to the perpetrators and name men, my God, do we get hostility. And what really matters in terms of courage when you're a feminist, when you're an active feminist, not the fun kind, right? Not the ones that trip around with their pink hair saying, I'm polyamorous this week, and anyway, men just need a cuddle and everything will be all right. I mean, the actual feminists. But when I think about what courage is within the women's liberation movement, I think about the way that we respond when we are attacked, as opposed to being courageous and brave because we are attacked. Because otherwise, pretty much every woman that ever speaks out about male violence is instantly labelled courageous. And actually being a victim of male violence does not make you instantly brave or courageous. It's about what you then do with it afterwards, what you do within a movement. And luckily, we are a movement, which means that we have a certain amount of support for each other. But like any leftist movement, we fall out constantly all the time and agree on almost nothing. But when I got into trouble back in 2004, having written an article calling into question the idea that you could just self-identify um, as a woman if you're a man and work in a rape crisis centre and counsel rape victims and use female-only facilities that are there because of male violence, um, then obviously the trans activists came after me. But I realised there was one stage that I realised that there was absolutely no point doing that I apologise if I've offended the trans community, because they then come after you much harder. And it was a really invaluable lesson, and one that others have learned since, because they do come after you harder, and that's because they're bullies. So it's much more interesting, I think, to look at how bullying works, to how mass bullying works, particularly now in the age of social media, than it is to look at what courage is, because it absolutely is about standing your ground and saying, no, I still believe what I say. I still think what I said was true and correct. And the thing that I want to get across as a feminist to any, any woman on the planet, but in particular young women that are going to be saying, no, it's men's fault that they rape us. They don't all of a sudden just wake up and find that they're raping someone. We have a new diagnosis, by the way, people. Sexomnia, right? This is an actual diagnosis now. Another excuse for men to rape and get away with it. But what I want to say to young women is the bravest 
most courageous thing you can do and the hardest thing that you could ever do, but it will change your life, is the courage not to care if you are liked. Thank you. The courage not to care if you're liked is definitely a T-shirt. I mean, that is, that is a good slogan. Um, thank you, Julie. Bruno. Um, her name was uh, Shanti de Corti. Um, Shanti was, was at the departures area of Brussels Airport on March 22nd, 2016, when Islamic State suicide bombers struck. She and other classmates, 16 to 17, were on their way to Rome to celebrate the end of their exams at school. The bombers killed 14 people there who died in the blast. Shanti was lucky. She was close by, but survived. Six months later, she was diagnosed with severe post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. Haunted by the horrors of that day, she spoke in newspapers on the television of her crushing sense of guilt at trying to flee, leaving her friends as the airport ceiling crashed down on her head. She was open about her struggle and a suicide attempt a year after the bombing. On May the 7th this year, aged just 23, 23, Shanti died. She was given, at her request, a lethal injection in an Antwerp hospital on the grounds, ruled by two psychiatrists, of unbearable psychological suffering caused by untreatable depression. This is legal under Belgium's euthanasia legislation. Her case has only emerged over the last month or so because of concerns raised by one doctor who had offered her treatment rather than death. And I tell this story not to criticise or slight Shanti at all. Her death is a tragedy. But it is a lesson, a cautionary tale, that reveals the defeatism bordering on nihilism that is prevalent in many uh, European societies. This was a young woman with her life ahead of her. It's the duty and obligation of all of us to fight for life, to help people, especially those in authority with responsibilities for the welfare of the vulnerable. If you were walking across a high bridge and you saw a distressed young woman standing outside the railings about to jump, what would you do? Would you ask her if she needed a hand and then push her off? Or would you hold to her tight, calling to other passers-by to come and help? Shanti's death tells us how little in Western societies we are ready to fight. In terms of at least one life, Belgium finished the work of those suicide bombers by giving up on the struggle to give Shanti a future. After what she saw that day, surely society had, if anything, a special duty to her. Her case raises questions beyond her own or any individual's survival. These are questions for all of us, this act of, of, of resignation, of defeatism, to paraphrase Sartre, is society's will for everyone, an action in consequence that is a commitment on behalf of all mankind. Defeatism is the very opposite of courage. This is to turn tail from struggle because of an outlook or an ideology that diminishes, even stigmatizes, people's capacity to fight for a future. She was young and it was time to fight. She faltered and society acted on her behalf with an irrevocable surrender. Life is struggle. There is darkness, there is evil. We all have a duty to brave, be brave enough to struggle on ourselves, sure, but most importantly, to have the courage to reach out a hand to others, to hold on to the principle that all lives are worth a fight, at very least worth a fight.
Some things are worth fighting for, always, especially at the darkest hours before dawn can come. Shanti's tragic death tells us that many do not grasp this today. Courage is more than bravery. It takes us beyond ourselves to defy fate, to resist what the so-called realists tell us is inevitable of the psychiatrists. It pushes us into a world of principle, of free speech, equality, justice, and solidarity, the obligation of helping weaker people, weaker people who might be sick or poor. Take patriotism. Our societies stigmatise it because it is a declaration that something, our country, our communities, our territory, our borders, our people, are worth fighting for. It's the idea of fighting for something that is stigmatised. History is that virtue, a refusal to bow to fate or defeatism, or else it would have been the dark ages forever. We make history all people. Yes, we make it in circumstances not of our making, often in situations of struggle and adversity, even war, as we see in Ukraine. Courage is not passive. It's not about being sacrificed. It's not the cinder heap of a First World War. It's the active spirit of defying the odds, defying, to fight for our people, our world. This courage, as Hannah Arendt put it, is to leave the protective security of our four walls at home, to enter a new realm of struggle of politics, which takes us outside of the routines of everyday life and gives us new horizons beyond our daily work or home life. She wrote, courage is indispensable because in politics, the world is at stake. As Churchill said, the first of human qualities is courage because it is the quality which guarantees all others. Courage is when we live for the world. That is the impulse that makes history and that should guide our lives. With courage, we can take a stand and fight against the weight of circumstance or the juggernauts of realism and orthodoxy. Everything is changed. Thanks so much, Bruno. Um, I think that that sense of not being defeatist in the various ways that we've heard is so, uh, various uh, speeches that we've heard is so important. And the truth of the matter is, is that as we stand here uh, with UK politics, maybe more broadly, in such disarray, and we have faced quite some considerable challenges and continue to do so, I do meet people who retreat into what Ali reminded us so well at the beginning about retreat into groupthink for comfort, but also write off the struggle to win over people. And I thought, Julie, your, you know, your call out to persuade people, you know, your, your, your call out to young women is also to like not give up on young women who might well have gone in the wrong direction. But we have obligations to try and win arguments with people. And so I do worry about a kind of nihilistic defeatism, a lot of conspiracy mongering, just have us like just give in and just say oh, it's all been pulled, strings been pulled somewhere else, you know, what can you do? You look over at the Westminster village and think, oh, that's politics, just drop out, what's the point? And obviously at the Battle of Ideas, we think there is a point. So. This isn't going to be one of those discussions where people can go, can I ask 16 questions of the panel because we won't have time. 
Have you got anything to say at all, anyone? Right, good. Right, so uh, that person there in the middle. Yes, I just wanted to say uh, thank you so much to Sinatra Gupta for standing up. I think it's so important that experts in their field can stand up and uh, tell, uh, tell their side, going against the grain of what, uh, the, what is the apparent consensus. That, that gave me something that I could then take to neighbours to my neighbours, I could go around um, and say, look, we have an expert here who's saying lockdowns are not necessarily the right thing to do. Look at the Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, thank you for that. <laughs> Mind you, as you were saying that, I was thinking, I bet he was breaking the rules when he went around the neighbours. I mean, can you imagine that? That used, to be against, that used to be against the law at one point. Right, anyway, who's got the microphone? Yes, sir. Um, yeah, thank you very much. I... We live in a world where Julie Bindle is called a chauvinist, misogynist, sexist, almost like calling Nelson Mandela a white supremacist. And it's in, in that climate where, and I hate to make this uh, about myself, but someone like me works in a corporate world where if I don't join in in the DIY training or, or no, sorry, DEI, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> DIY I would welcome, um, I need it. Uh, but if I don't join, I am fired. And I appreciate what Dr. Gupta uh, was saying earlier that we should be compassionate about uh, with those people. But is there any other advice than compassion that you can offer for someone like me who wants to be courageous? I mean, uh, Ali mentioned 12 Angry Men, which coincidentally is the greatest film of all time, if you ask me. But I cannot be juror number seven unless I lose my job. And one last thing I promise to show. I just have to say thank you to Baroness Fox and Academy of Ideas because this is the only two days in a year where I get to meet amazing people who I can exchange ideas with without fearing the ramifications of losing my job. So thank you so much. It's utterly unforgivable to call me Baroness Fox, right? It's like... <laughs> Apart from that, thank you very much. Right, um, anyway. Um, I'd just like to absolutely agree with what Julie said about bullying. Rather than us being worried about being called whatever, I think the people who are attacking us, we need to turn it around on them and say, actually, no, you're bullying me. You're making me frightened to speak. There was a, a young girl who was at university who was saying she didn't actually express an opinion uh, for, for what the future ramifications could be on her prospects of employment. The people who are doing that to her are out and out bullies, and it's about time we started calling them out for what they are, not what they are accusing us of being. Everybody on this panel um, deny that they are brave, and, and, and maybe they're not being brave. Maybe they're just being true to themselves. I also think there's a point at which, as much as you try not to say anything, or don't want to have to say anything, you can't help it because it actually gives you a bad stomach not to. Thank you. <laughs> right. Um, yes, you carry on. Um, all I've really wanted to say is that I feel like this is an event that's attended by a lot of adults. And <laughs> I turned 17, I think, four weeks ago now. And... Today I met a load of other 17-year-olds who have come to this event for the first time ever. 
and they were excitedly talking to me about how much they loved debating and how excited they were, even though they disagreed with everyone on the panel, how excited they were to talk about stuff. And I would just say that I think there is bravery in even the smallest things. It's a quiet bravery, a, a quiet courage. It's not a, a you know, getting locked in an ice freezer or covering stuff in Ukraine kind of bravery, bravery, but we all have it. And I think at this event, it's where it's seen most poignantly. So thank you for hosting this event. Thank you. Thanks. I mean, God, that takes courage. Saying that you don't agree with people like me on the panel, bloody hell. And you're only 17. See you later. Right, anyway. <laughs> that was a great contribution. Yes, sir. Um, so I've got you. Uh, last year, I launched a, a magazine that was focused on the Liverpool City region, which is my uh, hometown. And uh, the aim of this publication was to try to uh, instill a sense of the possible in a city that is extremely defeatist in its political culture, uh, has kind of lost a sense of the possible, and is quite toxic in many ways. And the aim of the publication was really to try to create a platform where different perspectives could actually have a chance to sort of debate and, and play out. It is amazing the amount of pushback that we've had in that year, uh, and the sense to which particularly the left in the city uh, have, have seen us as being the enemy. Uh, and we've been accused of all kinds of things. We've been subject to sort of, you know, Twitter storms and uh, uh, all kinds of things. Somebody's got hold of our, of our managed to patch together enough financial details to keep making loan applications under our name to destroy our personal credit ratings and so on. So it's been an interesting experience to say the least. Um, we've tried to be brave. And sometimes we haven't always stood up. I've personally um, did a, an investigation into the local authorities, which I haven't published yet. And uh, I really should, so I take courage actually from coming here to actually just publish the bloody thing. But I think one thing I wanted to say was that to be courageous, sometimes you need people around you to encourage you to be courageous. Uh, sometimes, you know, our little team has felt a little bit isolated. So I think it's really important to try and build those networks around you to give you the courage because we're all subject occasionally to feelings of cowardice in the face of the horror of what might come our way. So that's, that was my point, really. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'd like to briefly speak about the courage of people who, during the lockdowns and the pandemics, particularly care workers who refused to... They'd looked after people all the way through the pandemic. Many of them had COVID and had come through it. And um, the government announced a vaccine mandate where many people felt that it was unnecessary and they stood against it within the care sector, which is one of the lowest paid, um, least appreciated sectors in our culture. And yet it's one of the most important things that people can do. 40,000 and more people were sacked for standing up for bodily autonomy and for their own decisions to not take the vaccine for whatever reasons they had. Um, the vaccine mandates were overthrown. The NHS workers didn't have to um, undergo that and so that didn't have the same impact upon the sector. There is a campaign run by the Together Association to ask the government, Therese Coffey, who's currently 
the Deputy Prime Minister and the Minister in charge of social care to apologise, to reinstate and compensate the care workers. Um, and it's something I think that, that really um, is of importance to all of us that we consider this group of workers. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's taken me two days to have the courage to speak, so thank you. Uh, you know, I've uh, received the Woman of Courage Award in uh, May this year, and someone nominated me for the Woman of the Year as well last month, and uh, the Home Secretary won, which is fair enough. But uh, my point was, I, I felt like a fraud. I said, why was I given a Woman of Courage Award when what have I done? Was it for being gay? You know, and uh, yes, I did come out at 50, and yes, my mother did attempt to uh, kill me one night when she got to know of my sexual orientation, but was that enough to get that award? And last night, as we were going home, I thought to myself, you know what? I don't think I've been courageous at all. I feel, yes, I'm an Indian woman, once married, I have raised children. Yes, in my community, it may be courageous, but until I attended the Battle of Ideas Festival, I tell you, this is when I decided that I cannot be lobbied to stand up against erasing women. A lot of the trans community have asked me. And I was afraid to stand up for myself. And this has given me the courage to actually stand up for being a woman, not to be erased, not to be bullied anymore. And so I wanted to thank you for giving me the courage and the strength. Thank you. That's good to know. That's very good to know. Um, actually, that's a great humbling acknowledgement and worth having this festival for, even just for that. Um, Ali, anything you want to pick up? Right, this is kind of quick one-liners off, off the panel. Yeah, there, there are a few, actually. So, um, Sunitra said that uh, she didn't think she'd been courageous and she was being true to herself. I think she's downplaying it and being very humble, as she, she always is. But if you look at a report by Policy Exchange that looked at that 50% of academics in UK universities now self-censor for fear that if they actually express their views and they're not in line with whatever the mainstream view is, that they fear that um, their career advancement will be impacted or that, that they'll be adversely affected. So I do think that there is... Um, even in being true to yourself, there is some courage in that. And I'm glad that Oxford were, were you know, open-minded enough to not uh, clamp down on that, because I think they shouldn't have. Uh, the other thing that Julie mentioned was the courage to stand your ground. And I completely understand and agree with it, but there's also another kind of courage, which is the courage to change your mind. And I think of someone like uh, David Goodhart, when he talked about his views on immigration had changed over time and that how he now was not invited to North London dinner parties anymore because he's now regarded as beyond the pale because he's broken away from the tribe. That takes a certain courage as well. A couple of other points. Gentlemen over there uh, mentioned about how you can be courageous when there's a personal cost involved. That's a very, very good point, a fair point. That's a very personal decision. No one can take that for you. I mean, if you've got 800 million in the bank, like Rishi Sunak has, that, it helps you. I mean, you can be, afford to be a little bit more courageous. Um, if you've got a young family, maybe that plays on your mind about how to put bread on the table. So these are personal decisions that are made. But I think in that particular environment, wherever you are, 
the best thing to do is to try and find allies if one can, but they do, there does come a point at some point in, in one's life where one has to take a stand, and that actually does cost you, it can cost you personally, uh, in, your, in, your, in your relations with others, and also in your job. And the final point final, was, final, quick. someone mentioned the word visceral. Uh, you know when you've had chats with friends about who are unhappy in their jobs a lot of the time, fundamentally, I mean, it's not just about money often, it's about the fact that where there's a misalignment of values between the place you work and your inner core beliefs, there's a misalignment there, that's where you feel this viscerally. And I think the same thing happens when you see that ideals and values you hold dear are not being actually played out and aligned to, and that's where you have to feel that you have to speak up. It's a visceral thing. Thank you very much. Tim, anything you want to pick up? Yes, I was very interested in the lady who brought up uh, speaking your truth as an idea. Uh, I think everyone on this panel probably comes from different traditions. Uh, I come from the Catholic one. We have a very particular definition of conscience. Uh, we wouldn't say that an act of conscience is just saying what you believe, even if it's nonsense and not true. Uh, so just to say uh, that the green is black or whatever, that's not an act of conscience, that's just foolishness. Rather, conscience is an expression of uh, how God runs through our being like Brighton Rock. It's an expression of what we believe is truth that's implanted in us. But another way of thinking about it, if that's a little too complicated and theological, is an ex uh, uh, the courageous defense of conscience is actually a terror of lying. It's a fear of being compelled to say something which you really, really know isn't true. And one thing I find interesting about uh, society we're in right now is how often it encourages us not just to hide our opinions but to say something we really feel strongly isn't true to lie and to be compromised so very often when someone is being courageous in a debate like this or, or when I am supposedly being courageous uh, I, and some people say I am when I write a particular column what I'm really actually doing is operating out of a terror of lying and a terror of being spotted by God lying it's not, it's, not just, it's not just that I, it, I'm not just doing this for myself. I, I'm doing it because I have no other option but to say what I see to be true. And Ali, you made this very good point. There do seem to be two varieties of contrarians. There are those, and I respect and love them, who are, who are sort of constitutionally obliged to say the opposite to whatever is put to them. And that can be very useful and exciting and can really help society progress. But in most cases, it, uh, that kind of courageous uh, articulation of a view is actually just someone saying, I've reached a point beyond which I can go no further without lying, and I refuse to do that. Okay, thank you. Um, we, uh, we actually had a, a, a keynote discussion on compelled speech, in which we had Abbot Christopher Jameson um, make those points about conscience. And I think that conscience point is very important. It's not just about asserting your belief, but being compelled to speak against your beliefs, which is now fashionable in the demand for, for example, pronouns or to just go along with the orthodoxies of the day will completely demoralise and kill off our ability to speak openly and act as a community or any kind of society. I mean, it's completely antithetical to democracy, let alone to personal sanity, it seems to me. Uh, Sinekla. Um, well, I um, was taken by the question, I mean, I, I think it's very important to think about what we can do. So the question about how do we create the conditions under which people can be courageous I think is important um, because that's what society, that's what the social contract is about, is for us to come up with something that allows the, the greater good to prevail, if you like. And 
I mean, as such, one possible solution, I think, is um, not to expect to always be able to be courageous, but to think of it, there, it is a progression. So you start off perhaps young, you know, you're young, you don't have as many responsibilities, or as much, and that's the time to be courageous. And then there's a period when you are, you know, responsible for young children, you're you have to, you have to act in ways, you have to make compromises, shall we say. And maybe it's okay to allow yourself at that time not to be courageous, provided you then, you are a part of a social contract, really, that when you get to a stage where you can speak out, that you should. Yes. And I think institutions could help promote that by perhaps being more punitive towards those who attempt to stop you from doing that. So, you know, I was um, slandered, libeled, whatever, by many academics uh, who continue to, on Twitter, say, what a, this should not be allowed. The universities and other institutions, the Royal Society, should come together and create a culture in which that is not um, permitted. So perhaps at an institutional level and as a society, we can agree that there are times in your life when it's absolutely okay not to do the courageous thing. Okay, thank you. That's very interesting and some practical ideas there as well. Julie. If I were, as a secularist, if I were to um, be instructed to put an email sign off with God bless, I would be deeply, deeply resistant and defended. And I would say no. And that's, I think, what we should do about the pronoun nonsense. Because, of course, it's passed off as progressive and it's anything but. And, and it is compelled speech. And it absolutely suggests an ideology um, by which those that have to use it and agree to it and acquiesce are then tied up with, and it gets worse and worse. But I would say about the, the issue that, of course, I agree. There are those of us with much more privilege and license and you know, financial security to risk being sacked or to lose work, and that there are those for whom it would be a disaster. But I think we need to look at it differently. I think that we need to collectively enable those who would perhaps be at risk of being sacked, disciplined, or their lives being made hell in the workplace, and somehow work together with them to prevent that from happening. Legal cases is an obvious one. Crowdfunding, crowd justice is the way to go. And to ask those with disposable income to contribute. Those with disposable income that don't speak out in support of their colleagues or their friends, who choose not to have a difficult life. And so there's ways in which we can ensure that this does not go on and on as it is now. That we take as many legal actions or threaten as many legal actions, not for censorious purposes, but to say, you have to uphold my employment rights, you have to uphold the law. And we can't just say that those that have little funding or little power in the world have to just hide, because what's happening within feminism with women that run rape crisis centres, women that do vital work in 
getting justice for those that have suffered the worst kind of male violence is that they have been bullied into accepting men in their services or they'll lose their funding. Well, rather than them caving in, those of us that can do something should be making sure that we support them to be able to keep their funding and to say no to that huge compromise that is dangerous and will tie us up in knots forevermore. Thank you, Jude. Uh, Bruno? So, so sometimes we, we make commitments, um, commitments to, to principles, even principles as, as basic as, you know, a woman is a woman, that actually we don't make for ourselves. We don't make them for our families. Um, we don't make them for our careers. Um, we don't make them to make anyone happy. We actually make them for the world. They're that important. Um, so, you know, um, the choice of what clothes we wear or something like that isn't a commitment that we make for the world. The commitments we make for the world are on the level of principles. And that's when courage comes um, into play because if you're making a commitment that you're making for the world, can you hide? And I think, you know, I'm afraid we have to be really brutal uh, about this. Bravery is something everyone does. Everyone is. Most people are brave in, in, in the course of their daily lives. We're brave for our families. We're brave for our children. Um, we're brave for our, for, for our husbands or wives. That's bravery. We do, we do bravery all the time. Courage is that moment when you make a commitment for the world, a commitment to a principle but actually forces you even out of that world that you've been so brave about. It forces you out, certainly, into um, the public realm. And it means, really, that you can't hide, because if you hide, along the lines of, of what um, Tim was saying, you're, not no, you're no longer making that commitment um, for the world. So it's, it's not easy, and we live in a time um, when, certainly in terms of employment, people are under... Um, intense pressure, but I think it is important that people don't hide, even if it has consequences, especially because it has um, consequences, and, and, and that is why the public realm is so important. The most important commitment that anybody can make for the world is free speech. Thank you very much indeed. I, just, um, I can just take a couple more. So I, I do have to disagree with Julie. I actually think there's a lot of courage for women nowadays to not be feminists. And while I don't agree with Julie's views, I actually do respect her for being an actual feminist. As nowadays, this whole idea of choice feminism has pressured so many women to identify as feminists by making feminism synonymous with female agency. And if that were the case, then Phyllis Schlafly, Margaret Thatcher, and Georgia Maloney would all be feminists. Yet feminism shouldn't just mean a woman making a choice. And I am not a feminist because I do respect men and I know that, as Erin Pitsy had the courage to state, domestic violence is as equally committed against men as it is against women, asked Johnny Depp. And lesbian couples actually commit the highest rate of domestic violence, which feminists rarely state. True. And I do want to be a wife and a mother and I don't think that that is a wrong thing to say and I think most women nowadays feel afraid to actually stand up and say, I desire marriage, I would like to be a wife and mother someday as well as being a career woman and that's shouldn't be wrong. Women shouldn't be afraid to stand up and say, I'm not right, a feminist. Right. It's a thank whole you. Okay, thank you. There's a whole manifesto in two minutes. I mean, you might not agree with it. You'd have the argument about it afterwards, but uh, fit, right, very quick, sir. In answer to that, uh, you know, we We've live God. in a world where... I don't want you to answer it. We live in a world I want you to ask, a, say, make a quick point, quick. Yep. 
we live in a world where if you want to have children, you want to bring them up in, in relative peace, look at the amount of aggravation that we probably all get, right? We, we're living in a situation where it's impossible to just have a point of view and bring up children because there's so much anger and fury. You don't want to bring them up in that kind of environment. And you'll get the social workers and you'll get everyone else around you saying you won't, right? We have to, we have to create a world, right? And we're doing it here and now. This is a humanitarian uh, project to bring everyone together so that we can all talk reasonably so that we could bring up children if, if we wanted to. Okay, thank you. You kept that nice and brief. Right, yeah. Yeah, how, how can I not quote Thomas Paine, who's writing in the 18th century? He wrote, he who dares not offend cannot be honest. And he says, I have always strenuously supported the right of every man to his own opinion, because he who denies that right to another is making himself the slave to his present opinion. So despite the power imbalance between those who censor and those who are censored, we must always remind ourselves that independent thinkers are actually in a stronger position than those who make themselves their slaves to their present opinions. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. This is quick, sharp, I know. Yeah, quick, so, sharp. On. Okay, so um, I wouldn't consider myself a courageous person, but over the past year, I've spoken out on the sex versus gender debate um, at work and in my friendship groups, and I have... Um, had negative reactions towards that and part of me has always thought why don't you just shut up about it and just not say anything but even if I thought that was a good idea it would be impossible for me not to say anything about it so that's why I'm always talking about it and the other thing I think um, in, in support of free speech is that if we shut down one side of the debate which is what's happened with the sex and gender debate, is that we get really, really bad policies and potentially bad laws as well. And we all know, for example, now all the retail stores have got rid of their single-sex spaces, or most of them have. And as a result, Primark has now got its own porn category where men have been videoing women and girls who, without their knowledge, and also doing other obscene acts. They've videoed themselves. So, okay, sorry. Sorry. Thank you very much. I'm sorry to interrupt. I look like I'm being rude, but this is the end of the festival. But anyway, I commend you for your stance, and thank you. Yeah. Um, a response to the chap over there who was thanking the Battle of Ideas for uh, two days where we can have these discussions. Just want to say that about 11 years ago, I went along to something in Birmingham called the Birmingham Salon. And what the Birmingham Salon does is run events like this it was run by people I now know, and it has expanded and included lots of new people. We get together, we explore ideas. I'd encourage everybody here to either find out if there's a local salon or start your own, because um, there is something that is not groupthink, but it helps us think, which is to have social norms. They are really being eroded at the moment. Bruno's example in his opening comments is a shocking, a shocking example of this. The salons, that experience of talking and discussing ideas at least gives people a space to think and discuss and kind of re-agree what those norms might be, what ideas are worth fighting for.
Thank you very much. That was very good. Right, person in front of you, but you've got it. Yeah, go on. Uh, we can't have a discussion about courage uh, on this day without mentioning Daphne Caruana Galizia. It's the fifth anniversary of the assassination of Daphne, who was a leading Maltese journalist. Uh, when she was murdered, um, the chief of police said she had it coming. And the defence lawyer, sorry, the prosecution lawyer one day was there for the prosecution, next day showed up defending one of those accused of killing her. So just to say, please go and look up Daphne's story, support her cause if you can, because um, she really fought, fought for what she believed in, which was to free Malta from incredibly corrupt institutions. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. The yeah, other yeah. thing uh, we should remember about courage is that it's both inspiring and infectious. So when I saw those guys at London Bridge, I thought, God, I, I, I hope I would have the courage to do something like that. And then when I see people stand up, when you think they're gonna get canceled and shut down and lose their livelihood and everything, and you think, God, that's courageous, maybe I can do that. And that's the thing about our service and our duty and all the things that no one ever talks about anymore, that having courage inspires others. And when we do it, we'll see a lot more people do it. So very simple, courage is inspiring and infectious. Let's all go out and do it a bit more. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Last one here. Causing controversy and standing up for what you believe in is hard. Staying silent, staying silent and creating a sort of facsimile of yourself in order to keep people happy and to, and to not rock the boat is also hard. Choose your hard. <laughs> Thank you very much. And then that gentleman. Uh, very, very briefly, um, to echo what the gentleman at the back said, uh, under the Police and Crim Criminal Evidence Act of 1984, every single person in this room, every single person in the UK, is entitled to arrest a suspect in the commission of an indictable offence. That includes criminal damage and theft in Fortland Masons. So next time anybody sees anything like that, go and arrest the person and inform them that they're under arrest. Thank you. Right, that's classic. The idea that the final contribution from the floor is that you're all going to turn into vigilantes going around attacking... <laughs> Attacking vegans. My reputation's never going to survive this one. Um, panel, get, uh, get ready to kind of give us your final thoughts, which is impossible in the last minute, but I'll just take this opportunity of saying, I thought that what Bruno said was something we should really consider, because actually I think that probably, and it's at the end of the festival, we haven't maybe come to terms with something, um, which I hope that we will over the next year, which is, I do think that we have a bigger problem, which is a kind of defeatist culture in which we would, for example, not be absolutely outraged internationally that the state would sanction the euthanasia of a young woman who said that she felt too depressed to live. Affirming people saying, I demand that you do this because it'll make me feel better even to the extent that they say, or, you know, I want to die, it'll make me... We must fight tooth and nail against that kind of nihilism in any generation and cling on to each other and say your life is always worth leading, even if your opinions are of utter difference to mine and so on. And the second thing is... 
it, there's obvious analogies with affirming other things when people say, I demand you do this. But you know, that's where you go, right? And that's where, and there is a mood of gloom. You know, I've heard people say, oh my God, war in Europe, economic challenges like we've never known, no grown-ups in the room, political parties falling apart. I mean, what are we going to do? And it's like, well, what are we going to do is we are going to make a better bloody world, make a better group of politics. I mean, we can't give up. But in order to not give up, we have to have convictions and courage of convictions. And in order to have the courage of convictions, we have to know what our convictions are. And if you can't even think out loud for fear that you'll be cancelled, if you can't even explore what you might or might not think, and there'll be rows, that's all right. How can you even know what convictions you have to have the courage of those convictions? Which is why you need a free speech festival. And, the, and not just this one, I mean, just uh, somebody said at the back, Rosie said about the Birmingham Salon, I mean, set something up locally. Because the other thing is, it is not groupthink to have solidarity. As that young woman said at the back, she didn't agree with anything that she's heard today, but she's recognised that this is a space where it's all right to not agree with anything she's heard today and recognise that building a new public square, it's not even that it takes courage, but it can inspire courage and a sense of solidarity of not sitting at home in despair as you scream at the telly or think life's not worth living. It's always worth fighting for a better world. And that's what this is all about. So, I am now going to ask, before we go into the bar, I'm going to ask for final thought of the festival in the order in which you spoke. Ali Mirage. Well, what a, an amazing uh, and uh, wide-ranging uh, discussion and debate. Really thoroughly enjoyed it and have learned a lot. I think one of the things I'll take away from this is something that Bruno said, which is courage is thinking about the world, something bigger than yourself. It's exactly what Peter Tatchell told me. It's about a principle. It's acting for something just more than your own self-interest. Uh, Christopher Hitchens once said, the life of an oppositionist is not designed to be easy. Uh, my uh, appeal to all of you uh, is to avoid echo chambers, groupthinks, and tribalism. Channel your inner contrarian so that we can actually change the world for the better. I, I think that one gentleman used the words uh, duty and service, which I think is very useful because it reminds us that uh, courage can be born of obligation, that it's not just the individual uh, with their own agency, doing their own thing, deciding, you know what, today I'm going to go out and arrest someone. It's about uh, people saying, uh, what does my community need? What is expected of me? And how do I live up to those standards? And when I see parents uh, with disabled children or parents with children that have addictions um, and they care for those uh, kids without asking, without asking anything in return and against all the pain and agony they go through, they never think about it because it's born of, of nature, of instinct and of parental obligation. Uh, and that obligation drives that courage forward. Um, on, on the question uh, of, um, what is it called, gender? Um, <laughs> no, 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 what, what do we call people who are critical of the trans thing? Gen gender critical. Gender cri on the gender critical thing. Uh, uh, first of all, on, on, on that whole thing, uh, the, the, the very odd thing about that is that it's not a, it's not a controversial point of view. Uh, the vast, vast majority of people agree with what is called gender critical thinking. And it, I, I'm, I can't quite get my head around how we've reached a point whereby one has to be courageous to articulate a view that I would imagine is held by about 80% of the people. I mean, there are signs around this hall saying keep prisons single sex. 
Everyone agrees with that. So how do we reach that point? But on the other hand, this is where I want to finish. On the other hand, uh, I can't walk away from this debate without saying there is courage on the other side. And I think when I see uh, what some trans people go through, <clears throat> the courage to be themselves, I do think is very, very brave. And I can't not acknowledge that in this public space. And I can't recognize their dignity and their personhood and what they've been through uh, to make the extraordinary effort, as they see it, to simply be who they really are. A few people are bad to chat to you in the bar about that, Tim. I think that's true. Um, but, Sine. Um Just two points. One, um, just echoing the, the words of um, the 17-year-old who stood up and spoke, that courage begins at home. Courage begins with small acts. And so that's very important to remember. And courage, those small acts make you feel good. From that, you start to build this identity in which you know, courage becomes part of who you are. But the other thing I wanted to say concerning courage and conviction is that courage doesn't always arise out of complete certainty about things. Uh, courage also encompasses and often arises out of uncertainty, the ability to question, the ability to be humble. So I think um, my favorite pronouns, which somebody I think put up on Twitter, are um, who, me? <laughs> <laughs> I love that, thank you. The most courageous group of people that I come across on a regular basis, they contact me, I meet them at places like this, well, feminist places, um, are young women, young feminists, who are resisting the pound shop Owen Jones's diktat, which is sex work is work, trans women are women, stripping is empowering. In other words, everything that's bad for women being turned Orwellian style into something that's good, that benefits men, a feminism for men, not for women. And these young women have, are facing a tsunami of misogyny right now, way worse than when I did when I was a teenager and a young woman. And I would stand in front of those women and I would take a bullet for them, because this is a movement, and therefore what we have to do is recognise our responsibility in supporting those women who are facing the leaders with their beards, male leaders of feminist societies and LGBTQQI2 spirit plus societies. And we need to just get them off those podiums. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Bruno? Yeah, I, I, I want to finish on, on the note of um, uh, a duty, um, actually. Um, Odd as it might, uh, odd for it might seem, it's it, this idea that courage is the first of all human qualities, um, because it's a quality which guarantees all the others. Just think about all the all that is good in the world: freedom, our ability to have free speech here, all the gains of feminism which were made um, over the last uh, generation, all the gains of of history. They're not there forever. All that's good only comes with courage. If we want to keep what's good, we have to have courage. You can always get another job. <laughs> he, he's right. He's right. If we don't fight for it, we lose it, or whatever that phrase is. Listen, thanks to the audience, thanks to the panel. Now there is a free drink, uh, uh, care of the sponsors of the festival, one, one free drink, and then we're all going in the pub. 
Um, but anyway, we're going for a free drink out there in the bar opposite. You've been a brilliant audience, been a great festival, but let's give a rouse of applause. Thank you. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to catch all the recordings from this year and more from the Academy of Ideas team. 